This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Everybody, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And we're coming down off our live show high. We're up here, still a little high, I think, off of the energy little, and the a crowd. Tired. But we're coming down, and we're just coming down for a soft landing. We invite you to join us in this soft landing that we call life. Yeah, I, I, yesterday we did our live show on on Brian Jake's Redwall, and a bunch of people came out, and we hung out with a bunch of people after, and it was, it went well. We had a good time. It's gonna go up on the feed in the next week or two. Correct, Amundo. Uh, but I'm really like I've just been curled in a ball playing my Nintendo Switch for the last twelve hours because that's just like I expended all my extrovert energy <laughs> on you people. <laughs> Well, so thanks to everybody who came out um, and to folks who uh, were able to stick around. Um, if you were able but didn't really want to because that's not your jam, thanks for coming to the show anyway. Yeah, I totally get it. It's totally like it takes a lot to like decide to come and uh, like come out to see a podcast in the first place and then to decide to like, you know what? I want to meet those jerks. Like, mm -hmm. that's a cool thing. But if you don't want to meet those jerks, that's cool too. We yeah. appreciate you. Yeah. Um, and if you weren't I able to make I it, I wouldn't want to meet Craig again. I already oh, met him once. Man, I meet <laughs> me every day and it's a bummer. <laughs> um, but if you weren't able to be there, uh, like Andrew said, it'll be up next week. Um, so you can enjoy it. Andrew, we're here to talk about another book, though, not the book. Another book. That we talked about in front of people, the book that you're going to talk about in front of me today, which is what? Uh, the Book of Unknown Americans by Christina Henriquez. Mm -hmm. It's a book. It's published in 2014. Okay. We did not plan ahead of time to be releasing this episode the week after just a truly atrocious week of immigration-related news from the United States government, but that is how it shook out. Correct. And so if, if this episode has some extra poignance because of that. Yes. Then there you go. Yeah. Um, um, this is overdue. Every week one of us reads a book we've never read before and tells the other one about it. And you, the audience, comes along for the ride. Yeah. You, the audience. So Christina Enriquez, um, she's a relatively new writer, all things considered. I think her first book was a collection of stories published in 2006 called Come Together, Fall Apart. Um, and then her next novel, The World in Half, was published in 2009. And then this book was published in 2014. It was named The Daily Beast's Book of the Year, which I don't want to take away from that accomplishment. I just didn't know that Daily Beast gave out book awards. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just said, this is the book everyone needs to read this year. It's possible. Mm -hmm. I know them mostly as a news organization, not a book organization. 
I get the thing is though, and I know this from working in publishing is a lot of the time, if you're willing to develop an award and like maybe a little badge that goes with the award, there is sometimes big money in selling that badge to like the publishers or whoever. Oh, like I know in, like in tech that happens a lot is a bunch of sites will do like, Oh, this is the best thing at CES and here's a little badge. And there is money in selling the rights to use that badge in your like marketing and PR for so whatever your product is. What you're telling me is that all awards are corrupt. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's a hundred percent what's happening. Like sometimes people can just make awards to make awards, but a lot of the time when a giant, corporation is handing out the award it's because there's money in it because capitalism (laughs) well this book was also long listed for the for the carnegie medal which i think has a little bit more of a reputation yeah no none of that is to take anything away from the book at all that's just to that's just to tell you why publications hand out awards sometimes sure um and she's had stories uh, fiction and nonfiction, published in like the new yorker the atlantic new york times all the places that you might find stories um, she grew up in Delaware, where her father immigrated uh, to from Panama, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and that that's Delaware is where this book takes place. And um, the parents of one of the main protagonists came from Panama. Sure. Um, so she spent uh, her summers in Panama as a kid, but did not speak Spanish uh, as she was growing up. Um, so she mostly remembers that as kind of like being very patient and quiet and ob- observing a lot of human behavior, even though you're not necessarily understanding what everyone's saying. Um, she did end up studying at Northwestern and then at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which we haven't really like delved into as an institution, even though we've covered some of the writers that have come out of there, I mean, like the King, the Kingmakers up there in Iowa. Well, it, it is, it is in a way. No, I know I'm not sure. Okay. I said that made it sound like I was making fun of it, but okay. no, that's it's, it's got a rich pedigree of, of writers in its and, stable. And with that pedigree and stable, and with that pedigree and stable comes an element of gatekeeping and an, and an element of an expectation of the type of stories that come out of that workshop. Right. So um, I found a quote from her uh, from an interview with Bustle or The Bustle. Um, uh, I think it's just is, Bustle. Is it just Bustle? I think it's just Bustle. Okay. Whatever works. Lose the lose the. the. <laughs> it's cooler. Um, I personally had, this was in response to another essay about uh, the, the what was going on at the Iowa's Writers Workshop. Uh, I personally just had like a great experience in Iowa when I did my MFA. I never felt... Uh, any sort of expectation overtly. When I was there, I wrote all these stories that I thought I was supposed to write. Uh, And those which were set in the United States were about American characters, and those were the stories I would workshop and show everybody. And then I would go back to my apartment, and I'd write stories for myself that were set in Panama, and I would never show those to anybody. I'm glad that someone finally... uh, I had someone finally read the stories set in Panama and tell me, these are the stories that you should be writing. Not only were they exploring a territory that a lot of writers weren't exploring, they were just better stories. And I think some of those ended up going into that short story collection. Yeah. Um, So That that effect is real, though. Yeah, I know from that one fiction writing class that I took that I've talked (laughs) about a few times on the show. But it it was just kind of funny how... 
varied and all over the place. Like the first thing we did, the first thing of, of each other's that we read was the sample that we used to get into the class in the first place. And it was funny how diverse and all over the place in genre those pieces were compared to the pieces that we handed in at the end of that workshop, oh, yeah, which were all sure. very like serious books about sad teens breaking up with people and finding guns and doing <laughs> things with the guns. <laughs> yeah, some of the folks you might know from the Iowa Writers Workshop, John Cheever, Philip Roth, I think, I don't know if... I don't know if Foster Wallace went all the way through Iowa or is this there for a period of time. Um, someone can correct me on that, I'm sure. But I was in that writing class with John Cheever's grandson. Were you? Yeah, whose ex- name also was John Cheever. That explains why your story turned out the way it did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so then she embarked on these stories and, and this book kind of crested and, and I think she lives in Chicago now, but... Um, she did write an interesting essay for the New Yorker. It's like a short little nonfiction essay called how I became a writer. I think it was a series they were running and I found this just really charming that it's a, she says, uh, she started writing because she was interested in a boy. Um, and quote, predictably, uh, she had been like telling him how much she loved him and they were in high school and he was like being a boy about it. Predictably, instead of being flattered by my confessions, he was annoyed, prompting him to approach me one day in school and hand me a blank journal with a burgundy fabric cover. He said, I have an idea. Why don't you write down everything you want to say to me for the next year, then give this back to me? And she did. (laughs) She did. She wrote it every day. And he didn't return my feelings, she said, but it hardly mattered by then. I had found a new obsession. As soon as I ran out of space in that journal, I started another and then another after that. I haven't stopped writing since. So, so toss that boy in the garbage. And toss just that keep boy writing. in the garbage and just keep writing. <laughs> That's Everybody who ever picked up a guitar, I think, yes. was doing it to get <laughs> men or women interested in them, right? Like, that I, was primarily that's the main reason why anybody picks up the guitar yeah and i think i like you know i i'm sure i auditioned for some shows that i didn't really care about because of girls i was interested in like you just you'd be a teen about some stuff you'd be a teen about some stuff now and i don't want to dismiss the ingenuity of the boy she was interested in because that is Hey. A very good way to get somebody to leave you alone. <laughs> and he's very and creative. He launched a woman's career. Yeah. He helped her. I mean, he she earned it by the writing and the work. Right, 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 right. But, but. but he has done more for a woman's career than most men, I think, have done. <laughs> sure. In in launching this. That's true. Inadvertently. Um, and then, uh, last but not least, about this book, um, it did launch. She did launch an online project called the Unknown Americans Project, which was a Tumblr she was running until I think mid twenty sixteen. Maybe folks could even still go publish to it. I don't know, um, but she was encouraging uh, immigrants to America to go on there, like share a photo and a story. And there's like folks from Bulgaria and Cuba and Japan and the Ivory Coast and. Argentina and Morocco and it's really cool um and most of them are like two or three paragraphs long and it's here's what you think about where I was coming from here's where I thought about where I was coming from here's my expectation of America here's how it's different here's how it's not um and just again like 
I'll be interested to know what you think about this book because a lot of what she said about it is it has to do with telling everyday stories and not like like grounded stories about people who don't otherwise have their stories told. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a lot of what the the book is about. So we'll we'll dive deeper into it after the break that we're about to take. But the the format that the book takes is there is an overarching story told by primarily by two characters, but interspersed between those like chapters from them are chapters from other characters who are sort of ancillary to the story. Like the the, the story takes place in this apartment complex in Delaware. Mm. That is mostly um, a, a home for immigrants from Central America, primarily. Okay. Um, so we're talking about like Panama. We're talking about like Venezuela, um, Guatemala, some, maybe. Yeah, Guatemala. Yeah. Like some from Mexico. So so yeah, like North and Central America, primarily. But um, okay. But but yeah. So so we'll talk about that more in a bit. But yeah, it, it's it's trying to tell a lot of a lot of little stories in between the big story that it's telling cool well let's take a quick break and you can tell me more about it craig bad news you're brushing your teeth wrong oh again yeah you're still 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 brushing your teeth wrong doing it i do it every day and i paid for all those classes and you're still (laughs) doing it wrong there's there's uh, gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a better way. Well, the truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, Oof. not for long enough, and we forget to change our brush on time, mm-hmm. a bunch of dumb idiots. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What That's makes right. Quip so different, Andrew? Quip, Quip is back. They're our toothbrush-based sponsor this week. <laughs> What's their deal? Their deal is Quip is the... <laughs> <laughs> Their deal, Quip's deal, is that Quip is an electric toothbrush <laughs> that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. I do like when something gives me the right amount of vibrations instead of too much or too little. That's good. And it like, mm-hmm. is it timed so you know how long to do it? Well, wouldn't you know, there's a built-in timer in Quip that helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Okay. So I've used this toothbrush myself. It actually pulses every 30 seconds, and every time it pulses, you're supposed to switch to a different quadrant of your mouth. Love hearing about your mouth so quadrants. if you find that the lower right quadrant of your mouth is consistently cleaner than the upper left quadrant, it's because you don't got Quip, you're not doing it right. Um, and these subscription plans that Quip offers are not just for your health, they're for your convenience as well. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Uh, Craig, do you want to tell them, tell them how to get this good toothbrush? Yeah, Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now... You'll get right your first now. you'll get we'll your wait. first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash overdue. Giving you five dollars. You are welcome. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Get that quip, get that toothbrush, get that clean teeth. Get your mouth clean. So, Andrew, this book, this book, 
it's not about known Americans. So I reckon (laughs) (laughs) it's not about um, Thomas Jefferson. What follows is a partial list of Americans that this book is not about. Thomas Jefferson, Sylvester Stallone. The OxyClean guy. Billy Mace. That's the same guy. Yeah. The Pine Saw Lady. I don't know her name. Phil Hartman. uh, (laughs) Michael Jackson. Uh, Juliana Margulies. Beyonce. Uh, Let me know if I hit someone that is actually in the book. Those are all the Americans. (laughs) Those are all of them. Who anybody knows. Those are um, that's come in my forthcoming book, the book of known Americans. Oh, and uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Yes, um, he will be in that book also. Yeah. So this book is not about those people. Who it's is not this? about them? I mean, Obama is briefly mentioned. But <laughs> False advertising. Whoops! I messed it up. I goofed it. <laughs> so who is this book about? This book is about okay. So, so I mentioned before the break that it primarily takes place from the perspective of two people. So, the two people are uh, Alma Rivera, who is uh, an immigrant from. Uh, I just want to make sure I get this right. I believe it's uh, it's a town in Mexico to Delaware. Okay, um, they have moved. Legally, like they got um, her husband, Arturo, got a work permit. He he harvests mushrooms. It's a very demeaning job, but he has a visa for it and he does it. And that's more than a lot of people have. Okay. Um, They and their daughter, Maribel, have come up because Maribel, a few months before, had hit her head and has is suffering from like long term some sort of grade brain damage some yeah. sort of TBI that is causing complications yeah and so okay. um so they have come up because they they have been led to believe by their doctors and i think just by just by general knowledge that america has better doctors and they also have schools that are better equipped to handle somebody with with maribel's needs okay um maribel can still like do a lot of stuff for herself and it's not clear at the beginning of the book how much better she can get but she just has she has short-term memory issues her personality's not the same um yeah so they are dealing with that but they have come up to get her enrolled in a school that can that can help her and to try and help her get better okay um and they so they are uh coming up like through the visa program that arturo has or or whatever yeah and there's a the 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 story at the beginning of the book like even though they are coming up legally it's not a it's not a glamorous thing like they are their whole way up in this in this van that they're coming up in like the drivers pointing to oh here's like a here's some free furniture that somebody left along the side of the road just grab it Oh gosh, and like that's gonna help you get started because it's gonna be difficult for you to get stuff otherwise. Oh, okay, um, that's an yeah. interesting way to to tell that story. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so that that's uh, so Alma and then her and her family is is one of the two like focus points of the story, and then the other protagonist is a uh, Mayor Toro who is a teenager. Um, he is so his parents are from Panama, but he's basically an American kid. Okay. Which is not to say that he does not deal with a lot of a lot of racism and a lot of kind of isolation in the sure. in the community that he's in. Like when he when he goes to school, he he has a few friends, but he gets picked on. You know, people occasionally will tell him to go home. 
And they don't mean his home in Delaware. No, I don't believe so. Sure. They mean the the whatever home it is that racist people feel like every brown person has somewhere. Yes. Okay. Um now, do you get the sense um that either of those is like either of these families are they kind of like parallel lead protagonists or uh, is it like one person's story over the other or are they kind of like is it flipping back and forth? It's flipping back and forth and it, and it's telling both of their stories. So they're they're slightly like Mayor's father has been in America for a long time um and is a line cook at a diner where he's been working for like 15 years. Okay. Um so they came up like we we get a um we get a point of view chapter from Mayor's dad and he says um this is this is during a, a period of unrest in Panama. Uh, we tried to give it time, but three years later, we made the decision to leave. We never felt safe there again. We felt as if our home had been stolen from us. And part of me felt embarrassed. I think that my country hadn't been strong enough to resist what had happened to it. Maybe the way to say it is that I felt betrayed. Uh, we're Americans now. I'm a line cook at a diner, and I make enough to provide for my family. Celia and I feel gratified when we see Enrique and Mayor doing well here. Maybe they wouldn't have done so well in Panama. Maybe they wouldn't have had the same opportunities. So that makes coming here worth it. We're citizens, and if someone asks me where my home is, I say Los Estados Unidos. I say it proudly. Hmm. So yeah, just just different different experiences. Like one is the one is the like I just came up here like yesterday experience, and one is the I have had a chance to make this place my home, and my kids don't really know another home experience. And then, and then, like the third level of that is Mayor's experience. It sounds like, which is the this has always been my home. Yes, right, right, right. And yet, I am still treated differently for it, or just in spite of it, or or whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, so, um, what those two characters and their families, like the the main arc of the story that's happening in between all these other smaller point of view chapters, is um, just dealing with the reality of living in America. Okay. Um. So, like Arturo, um, loses his his job like later on, and this is this is happening, like the first election of Obama happens like during the like just before the action of this book so we're we're talking like deep in the depths of the great recession is when the action of the book is taking place okay and so every like job related pressure that i think an immigrant family would normally be experiencing is heightened like now like here and now is heightened because it is bad for everyone everywhere um so we're we're getting their families kind of dealing with with that like both fathers lose their jobs and have varying degrees of success getting them back. Okay. Um, Maribel is dealing with school and gradually becoming better, but but um, but um, Alma feels this is so uh, Maribel got injured. Um, on a construction site that Arturo was working on. Um, she wanted to come and she wanted to help and she just wanted to you know be involved in what her dad was doing and she got Alma believes she got hurt because Maribel was climbing down a ladder that Alma let slip and so she's dealing with a ton of guilt about like oh this is my fault I need to 
make sure everything here in America besides the job goes smoothly because that's that's just like what I owe to my husband and my daughter. Okay. That's so she's oof. got a lot of she's got a lot of pressure coming at her that way. Um and then um yeah, Mayor is just is dealing with this one particular dude who is like interested in in Maribel but also racist. <laughs> oh neat. Okay. Um yeah, and like what is the school life that is depicted for Mayor? We don't get a ton of it. It just it feels like pretty standard grade American high school stuff. Mm-hmm. Um he's not at like Maribel's school, so the scenes oh, okay. that we even we even get there are pretty like pretty scan remarkable, okay. I think. Okay. Um because um, I also think it's interesting, and this is obviously based on her background, um, and she has spoken in that Bustle interview about this, that like it being in Delaware is, A, like kind of fun for her because she can reference Delaware things, and, and it's a state that doesn't often have a lot of stories told in it or about it. Um, but also it is not generally one of the states that gets mentioned when the news is covering immigration issues or issues for people like, you know, children of immigrants or, or anything that might be going on because it's yeah. not a border state. It's not a southern or southwest state. Um, it's not a big hub for various cultures in the way that New York is, right? Um, so it's, it's just interesting thinking about how uh, these families, like, fit into what is... P- usually thought of as just a kind of like oh oh it's just the first state it's just there it's delaware yeah. here's what it well is. and also like the the prepackaged immigrant narrative about yes mm-hmm. about you know texas and california or you know whatever life is like in, in border states and people taking our jobs and blah, blah 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 and not really not really knowing anything about the thing that you're talking about well and and the the like the next step of that too of like all of the um, the weird narrative of like, oh, well, when you're in those states, like that's where people are upset at immigrants because like that those are the border states where people are really concerned about it. And it's like, no, it actually happens all over the place and people are terrible. <laughs> people can be terrible anywhere. <laughs> and that's like... That's the great lesson of that, that's not life, a, I guess. It's not as easily packaged into one you know, article or interview, but it is unfortunately the case. Yeah. So, um, uh, Mayor is interested in, in Maribel because she is, she is very beautiful as is described several times in the book. Um, and he, you know, meets her fairly soon after, after they arrive and realizes that, you know, she's, she's got, she is very quiet. She's got a scar on her head. You know, she's, she is, um, got, brain issues Mm -hmm. but um but there's just something about the the way that she is like she is she is quiet but she's always listening like she Mm. doesn't say a lot but she has a way of thinking about things and and putting things that he finds um interesting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so they just they become friends and he is romantically interested in her and seems to seems to be helping her sort of find herself again after this injury that she okay. is, she has sustained. Do we get any of her perspective? Like, do we know what she's thinking? No, I mean we we very occasionally. So she will 
She has a notepad that she'll write in because she is trying to like collect her thoughts and track how she is feeling because she just has, she has issues remembering stuff. And so to help, she's got this book that she writes stuff in. Um, and, and the couple glimpses we get of those books is really all that we get directly from her. Like we don't get like any of these point of view chapters. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's the, that's the main thing. Um, the, Mayor Maribel thing, like I talked a little bit about before we started recording, is is it has the shape of a John Green book almost, <laughs> insofar as like here is here is this sort of awkward, sort of lonely boy who is supposed to be in soccer practice but isn't and lies to his dad about it and like has his own issues fitting in. Okay. And then here comes this this unique and and I don't want to say girl. quirky because that's not the that's not the thing that's happening here but this unique girl who has come in from nowhere who is going to change his life forever like it's it's the shape that a lot of YA fiction takes well and it takes that probably because that's how it feels right like it's not it 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 can when you put it up against other examples of it, it you can see the the like the same cardboard cut out and you're like well that's overlappy um i mean i think that the background of of it being an immigrant story does make it more interesting yeah, than no, maybe maybe like john green's eighth book about this happening no no but and i was I not was talking, to keep not to keep kicking at him but <laughs> i was talking more directly just about the john greenness of a ya romance right sure, 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 like, sure, sure, sure. when you're a teen like i remember my first relationship now i don't look back on it fondly but because I didn't know what I was doing, and I yeah, think it was just bad. Actually, you were you were primarily brought together by the girl's stated interest in you as a human being. Yeah. Like that's mainly what you had in common. Well, and so like that type of like to use the shorthand of this episode, that type of John Green teen romance is predicated <laughs> on a boy with like varying to low sense of self esteem, who you know it's also like garden state oh geez okay now we're unpacking some feelings of craig here um and like why 10 years ago i thought garden state was a good movie um wait hold on i'm just gonna can you just take one of my earbuds and we're gonna listen to this mountain goat song real fast and we'll get back to the podcast when we're (laughs) (laughs) but just like you're in that moment is very new you have you think it will never happen to you and here's someone and feelings happen and you can't oh boy, is so different. And it has to be different because it's happening to me. Like the the disbelief that something this powerful could happen to you is what lends it its power in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why these stories like sing for so many people. Right? Yeah. And, and I'd especially like, for that age group too. Sure, 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 sure. And um I guess let's just let's just talk about how that how that story ends because I think the heightened like finality of the ending is also also plays into that sort of YA okay John Green vibe is um so uh Mayor is grounded because he's been lying to his dad about playing soccer <laughs> and he and Maribel can't see each other for a while um Maribel is upset about it because she has this you know she has this friend/romantic interest who is also helping her 
kind of adjust to life and adjust to like how she feels now that she is just a kind of a different person because of this injury that she's sustained. Um, and what ends up happening ultimately is that they are forbidden from seeing each other because a nosy neighbor saw them making out in Mayor's dad's car. Mm. Um, and so Mayor who is 15 has his permit can kind of drive, but not really. <laughs> Sounds like 15 <laughs> swipes the car drives by her school, picks her up and they go and they have a very romantic night that they'll never forget where, um, they go to McDonald's and get fries cause she likes fries, but he's horrified to hear she's only had ca- cafeteria fries. So he has to like rectify the situation. I mean, McDonald's which I can is get. like, the best of the fries. If you get those McDonald's fries like 45 seconds out of the fryer. Heck yeah. That's that's a fry. That, that's a friend, real fry. A fry. Now, if if they've been out of that fryer for two minutes, that's mm. a wet potato, my friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different ballgame. I don't I think maybe Burger King might have the higher shelf life, but I like Rally's fries, honestly. Well, that's that supposes no, you know what a rally is. It's more of a it's more of a regional <laughs> thing. I think some some places they're called checkers. But oh, um, okay, yes, yeah, it's, it's sort of a okay. it's a larger fry with a more heavy seasoning mm. on it. Mm. But um, I think because the fries are larger, you the contrast between the crisp and the potato on the inside is oh that more pronounced. Where sometimes you get a McDonald's fry that has been fried to the extent that it just becomes crispy outside and yes. there's nothing left inside it is a crunch vessel is what it is it's like the fried toward the fried towards the bottom of the thing yes will inevitably be one of those yeah those ones that are like crunch boys it's almost like it's like a flattened straw paper that's just burnt fry that one yeah it's just yeah. a shell of a fry okay it has absorbed oil and salt but there is no potato left wendy's fries are fine they're mostly for frosties come at me um so what happens in this dipping a fry in a frosting is a thing that everybody dipping a fry in a frosty is something everyone acts like is controversial but i think everybody kind of just accepts that it's a done thing right it's a everybody does it everybody does it everybody does it you dip that fry in that frosty don't be ashamed you got soda at home you don't need a diet coke get a frosty put your fries in it you could go home and dip your fry in a coke no no dumbo dip it in a frosty (laughs) So what, what are, are we these talking kids, about? These kids were eating McDonald's fries oh, yeah, they, on so their last she, he, day on Earth or whatever. Ta- <laughs> he takes her, and they get McDonald's fries, and then you know, it's, it's wintertime, and so he drives her to the beach, and they both watch the snow like over the ocean, and Mayor is like, this is a thing. I know my mom saw this particular weird study in contrasts, and it it helped her fall in love with America hmm. because none of, none of these characters from, from Mexico or Central America have, have seen, have encountered snow really. Oh, okay. So like um, snow and ocean beach is like an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. And, it, okay. and it's, it's something that I think drives home f- how far away from home you are. Yes. Or your original home. Well, yeah. And a, and a metaphor for two different life 
like two different backgrounds or two different ways of life kind of coming together and meshing as opposed to sure being separate. Okay. okay. So they do this and it's all very sweet, but the mountain goats are playing, but the, <laughs> the mountain goats are playing, but the snow starts coming down pretty heavy. And so they pull over and fall asleep in the, in the car. And what is happening meanwhile at home is both these kids have disappeared and no parent knows what's going on. Great. Um, so Alma has been part, partly because she is harboring all this guilt and feeling like she needs to have everything on the home front under control. She saw that, you know, that racist boy I talked about before. Correct. Um, she saw him like, he had Maribel against a wall, not like assaulting her, but boxing her in and like he had her shirt lifted up and things were going to like things didn't go further than that. But they were non-consensual. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And so she is always sort of seeing this boy around every corner, like not literally, but she's always got her head on a swivel looking for this boy. And so her daughter disappears she assumes the worst, tells Arturo, this is what I think happened. I'm sorry I didn't tell you about this boy before. Arturo is like, wow, I can't believe you've been living with all this guilt. Like, this is so not your fault. Oh. And sort of helps absolve her of that. Okay, that's um, good. Yeah, Arturo's a kind of a, a sweet guy. Like, he's got to do a lot of, a lot of demeaning work to mm. support his family, but he's also... Like, their marriage is cute a lot of the time. Like, his relationship with, with, to the extent that you see a relationship that he has with anybody else in the complex is, is cute. He just seems like a nice guy. Okay. Um, so he goes up to confront this boy, and the boy's dad shoots him. Oh. And he dies. Oh. And because he... You know, he got fired from his job and he couldn't find another job in time to keep his visa current. You know, they are now undocumented. Oh. And so Alma and Maribel oh. got to go back. Oh. I didn't even read the book. And I'm very upset. Yeah. It's oh, kind of a God. kind of a gut punch. Kind of. And it comes from nowhere a little bit like like obviously all the ingredients and the setup and stuff were, were there but yeah it's one if of those... you're like I, I i think i bet as i was telling you that story you were expecting something to happen to the kids in the car and that's what the book kind of leads you to believe is going to happen too yes but then the the immigrant story comes back and the, like the the, the, yeah, the environmental that forces people have yeah. to deal with comes back and and adds this like ugly twist to it, I guess. Oh, and then so then like that's it. Like the book ends with them going back, or um, so that it's it's not like a the book ends with everybody in the community giving her enough money to get Arturo's body transported back to Mexico, so they can take him home. Because remember, like I said before, they left yeah. not because of political unrest, not because they were unhappy where they were, but because they thought it would be better for Maribel. Yep. Maribel is is doing better, is not the same person as she was, but is 
still like recognizable as herself and her time, like both because of, of natural healing, I think, and because of, of her experiences in America, she seems to be doing a little bit better. So they just, they drive back. The book ends with them driving back and just like seeing the way the, the landscape changes as you go from Delaware back to Mexico and the reverse drive. Yeah. And like, and like driving home, um, again, how far apart these two sort of worlds are. Oh God. Yeah. Woof. Ouchie. Wouchie. Okay. (laughs) So let me read you a, Oh man. Um, so there's like, there is an LA review of books interview with her where she talks about the book, being partially inspired by her father, who we've said came from Panama. Um, the book did actually start as a short story from Mayor's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, could you feel that in any way? That it was I don't, like not specifically. I mean, except insofar as he's still the focal point or a focal point of yeah. the book. When you say that there isn't and a like, major and a major POV character, yeah, too, that but. that Maribel doesn't have POB POB PO what is POB point of I don't know <laughs> uh, point of view chapters for Maribel I think kind of maybe leans that way, um, but then I want to share this quote with you, Andrew. I want you to respond to this quote from the Bustle interview. Um, someone asked me, not me, uh, Christina Enriquez. <laughs> um, <laughs> Someone asked me recently why I write fiction and why I wrote this story as fiction. Why not just write a political treatise about what I really do think? Part of it has to do with the reception that it will get from readers. If you put something out there that's overtly political and didactic, it turns many people off. But to say that this is a love story and a story about parents who are protecting their daughter, it's so many things, but it also happens to be about the lives of immigrants. I think that makes it a lot more palatable. If you put it in fiction, they're more likely to read it and perhaps think about it. Um, What is that? Does that kind of jive with your experience? I know that we're actually reading it. that actually dovetails really nicely with the other main thought I, I had about the book as I was kind of trying trying to think about it critically. Sure. Is um so like I said, like in between the Alma and the Mayor chapters, you get a lot of chapters from the perspective of of other people. And they've come from all over the place, but what they have in common is they have come to America, they have made it their home, and they have all settled into this apartment complex in, in Delaware. So you get um, like a point of view chapter from the from the landlord who, okay. you know, he didn't come wanting to be a landlord, but he managed to get a job and like someone saw that he was doing a good job and thought he would be a good, a good landlord. Yep. Um, he says, I know some people here think we're trying to take over, but we just want to be a part of it. We want to have our stake. This is our home too. I like it here. I started off as the manager, but now I own this building, bought it out almost 10 years ago after working jobs on the side, saving up. I got a good deal. The area is changing though. A class of cultures. I try to make this building like an Island for all of us. washed ashore refugees, a safe Harbor. I don't let anyone mess with me. If people want to tell me to go home, I just turn to them and smile politely and say, I'm already there. Hmm. Um, and most of the stories have that, that sort of vibe, but, but what you're getting is, um, if you are, I think on the like pro immigrant side of the U S immigration debate, 
I think you might find these chapters because because you do run into these characters elsewhere in the story, but not a lot. Like they're all yeah, on the okay. periphery and and you don't get to see them like acting out their history a lot. Yeah, like like yeah. it's a, like the the POV chapters are a case where the book is definitely telling more than showing. Okay. Oh, um, and that's just because like the the you know the primary the story yeah. is the is is the stuff that's happening with the other people, and these are just like these are just folks whose these are just unknown Americans whose lives are happening in the background. Yeah, passages of um, that remind me of like Studs Terkel's work. Um, he wrote the book Working. I think he's done some like a lot of first person interview based anthologies and collections that just kind of have that vibe of like here's who i am i'm telling my story and by putting those stories next to each other you kind of just force a reader to confront them and engage with them rather than like otherwise show something else happening okay Mm -hmm. um so you were saying those stories just kind of uh if you're on the pro immigration side of the debate you might find these chapters what well, so and I'll I'll read another one. Like this is from the perspective of a guy named Gustavo. He had he was born in Guatemala and has has moved up to the United States. Um, when I was twenty, and th- and this is after um, uh, the military in Guatemala at that time became too powerful and the people revolted. The army began kidnapping citizens who they suspected were against them. They were burying people alive. They were raping women 30 times a day. They were laying babies on the ground and crushing their skulls with their boots. How could a baby be against them? Perhaps it was a way to torture the parents. I couldn't take it anymore. When I was 20, I decided to leave. I attempted to persuade my mother and my brothers to go to Mexico. I made the argument that because of my father, we had a claim to it. But my mother was stubborn. She said if I didn't like the way things were, I shouldn't run away. I should stay there and commit myself to fixing them. But that's what the guerrillas had been trying to do for decades, and I saw no progress. No, I told her, I need to go somewhere else. And so this is this is an example of, a, of an argument that the book is trying to counter. So So if you are... Listening to anti-immigrant rhetoric, like somebody who is trying to position themselves as anti-immigrant, but quote unquote reasonable about it, will say, you know, what they should do if they're so unhappy with the place where they're from is they should stay and try and make it better instead of coming to our place. Sure, sure. And wrecking up the place, you know, in there. This is this is me entering the body of a fictional <laughs> of a fictional straw man that I've created for the purposes of an argument I make. Yes. I, but I love your straw man. He's so he's so good good looking like a man. He looks like a man he does out of straw. But th- that that's the kind of of argument like it, it's making Yes, I've read that. Like, I actually read that argument in a newspaper today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it's you know people who cross the border are doing it not because they want to come up here and like do a bunch of MS thirteen crimes. They're doing it because life back home is worse. They want to do it the right way, but have no other options a lot of the time. They many want to work and be active members of society. Um, they just want to have a place in American culture. They're not interested in destroying it. Um, and. If you're on the pro-immigration side of this debate, if you're engaged, if you're reading articles like you said, I think you're going to find a lot of these arguments very familiar and the way they are presented as you know, coming from characters who pretty much just are their little story mm. as sort of one-dimensional and anecdotal and like sort of sort of engineered to be sound bites or to like refute an argument huh. that that an unseen party is making about 
Interesting. You know, about like a negative perception of, of, of immigrants coming to the United States. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I also... F- it but, does. But to, so to get back to what you had asked about, I think she's doing that on purpose. And especially yes. I thought that before you told me that thing about the interview. But if you are somebody who doesn't have a position, if you are like vaguely worried about an immigration crisis that may or may not be happening. If you just, if you just have not had the opportunity to put yourself in the shoes of, of people who have come here from somewhere else, she delivers those stories in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're being lectured to about it. I think, and she is, she is couching it in in a way that is not immediately going to turn people off because it's trying to be overtly political. Yeah, and I think that she's spoken to this in the LA Book Review or the LA Review of Books interview as well, like asking why she did this book with several first-person narrators as opposed to a third-person like close omniscient or, or something like that. Um, she says, I want it... Um, that's the the hope of fiction is that it can force us to slow down long enough to consider beings other other than ourselves. I wanted to celebrate that immigrants who in our current national culture are often denied a voice should have a chance to speak. First person point of view seemed the best way to accomplish that. I never considered anything else. Um, so yeah, it seems like if you were, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. If you are engaged in this enough to kind of how, have already have staked out your position in in favor of immigration or fixing a broken system to encourage uh, greater opportunities for immigration as opposed to fixing a broken system to discourage it, which is the other side of that debate. Um, then yes, maybe you might hear this and go, "Oh, that just kind of sounds like that article I read." Um, yeah. Whereas in the context of this teen romance, parents trying to take care of their kids to just kind of encounter these characters as people live in their lives. Yeah. And the the book is very much grounded in, in just giving everybody like really creating a strong sense of basic humanity for every character, even if you only spend a few pages with them. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, Um, do you get any sense of one of the things, even just a little thing like, um, what's his name? The landlord, like, I don't know. It's so easy when you're confronting an issue that a lot of people want to boil down to an us versus them, which is unhelpful and and lacking nuance that like power structures can get flattened out. And just like having the landlord also be someone who has immigrated. Um, it, it's just a like a great reminder that the, it's not that simple. <laughs> like, like his for the for the record, his name is Fito, and he is from South America. He's from Paraguay. Okay, so yeah, yeah it's just like it's not as simple as like haves and haves not have ha- haves nots. It's not have <laughs> haves and have nots. <laughs> it's not a binary, but it is a weighted, uh, unfortunately weighted equation for a lot of things. Um, yeah, cool. I think can, um, I oh, guess, like, there's one other thing and I just want to this is a smaller thing I just want to ask you about. Okay, and then and then for the last like couple minutes we have we can we can sort of have an external to the book discussion about oh other things I guess. Okay. Okay. Um another and this is just let me know if this is in this book or if this is her referencing some of her other work. She told the Bustle interviewer 
um, about doing research for the book because she tried not to do too much but did enough to make sure that she felt she was honoring where people were coming from. I wanted to make sure I included certain prejudices and biases that someone from one country would have against someone from another country, like how a Mexican thinks of a Guatemalan. She uses as an example. Is there instance? Are there instances of that of like people of different backgrounds, not necessarily even being prejudiced, but speaking to different experiences that kind of are not the same? Do characters run aground on each other that way? Um, they mostly don't. So the, so the one big scene where everybody buddy sort of comes together and not even clashes, but like the, the differences become more pronounced is there is like a there is a Christmas party where the heat has gone out in everyone's apartment. And so a mayor's mom says we should just have everybody over. And it'll all, you know, it'll be warm and we can have a little party. And it speaks to the, the, um, the reason why it's happening in this little, this little apartment complex. That's an Island of, of refuge. Like, like, yeah, yeah. I mentioned before. Um, but there's just like, there's a little bit where, um, where Mayor's mom is, is sort of tweaking, um, Alma a little bit because she wants, cinnamon in her hot chocolate <laughs> which is apparently a you know mexican style thing and she's like oh everyone th- everything has to be like it was in mexico with you <laughs> and it's not it's not meant you know it's not it's not meant poorly like it's it's very much in this book anyway a case of you know what what we have in common is is more important than what we don't have in common, at least in this, you know, in, in this country. Where and we yet, don't, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yet finding at least what it sounds like, maybe some humor in the, yeah. the differences that we cling to regardless. Okay. Yeah. And then, they, and then they do a little, a little roll call where they all talk about the, the countries that are, that are represented. So that, huh. you know, Guatemala, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, like all, all kinds of different places. And they all are united in, their disdain for Feliz Navidad and always being asked if they love the song Feliz Navidad every Christmas. That's so good. Yeah. I'm so glad I've heard that because that will like the only other association I think Feliz Navidad has in my brain of like a specific piece of media is like a Sesame Street Christmas special mm-hmm. where they I think they ice skate to it. It's very bizarre. Um so I'm interested to have that joke. So what do you, what else do you want to talk about yeah, in I the just, larger? My, my personal <laughs> experience with Feliz Navidad is of my little brother, oh, singing it when he and he would all he just knew Feliz Navidad and then he'd go yeah da 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 with the music. <laughs> He's a little tiny kid. <laughs> so um, we read we did not as you said at the top of the show we did not program this book with the specific last week or two uh, here in June 2018 of news in mind, but it's certainly a book that we wanted to cover. Um, Is there anything that like jumped to mind while you were reading it that either made you think deeply or differently about what's been going on? No, I just, I just wanted to, I, I read something earlier today that drove home just how comprehensively we as a country have sort of failed. Yeah, sure. On the immigration front, because I, I and I forget the, the the specific article I was reading, but they'd said, you know, since 
2000-ish. I, I believe the the Dream Act, the original version of it, was introduced back in 2001. Um, like we have had every configuration of party control yes. in Washington. We've had divided government both ways. We've had we've both had major all, parties we've, in control. We've had yeah. all Democrat government, like even like Democratic supermajority for for a few months in yep. there. Um, we've had all Republican government, which is what we have now. Um, and in like every one of those cases, we've had a situation where both major political parties have expressed an interest in fixing some of the problems, like especially centered around um, the people who who are usually called dreamers or, or uh, recipients of, of DACA, and for people who don't follow or people who aren't as familiar with with American politics, this is a um, a bill that you know there there have been a lot of different versions of it, but the basic version of it is that it would provide um, legal like residency for people who were brought to the United States as children, like people who were minors and had no control over whether they came here. Yes. Or not. Yes. Defer, um, deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals, I believe, is the acronym. For, I think it wasn't... For Childhood Arrivals? Yeah, not against Childhood Arrivals. So, well, I think, it de- like, deferring it, like, you're not... <laughs> yes, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, correct. Um, but, um, yeah, like, a- a- and each side even ostensibly has a a list of stuff that is pretty, like, non-controversial that they, they agree on even... Um, and yet, I, I I am more inclined to to blame things on Republicans than than Democrats. But I know Democrats have done a lot of a lot of stuff in the in the interest of like politically saving face or doing what they think is politically expedient over what is like the right thing to do. But um, I don't know. Like we we sense that like we all want to do something about it. We all agree like this and this and this are things that should be done about it. And yet for decades, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're even getting to a point with the with the current debate where um I think that one of the things that, that can be done to help deter like the quote unquote bad kind of immigration is to, to try and help improve conditions in the countries that people are coming from. And we we have got a political discourse and a sort of party in power that is that frowns on on the concept of foreign aid and of trying to help people other than ourselves. So it's just it's just a bad well and situation. And I didn't know if, like I don't know if you and I because we're engaged. Like if we want to talk about like thing like steps you can try to take if you're if you're upset about the situation if that makes um, sense yeah and i also just want to say first that like the what the thing you just said about foreign aid is it is a goal that we is a noble one that we should pursue but we should not pursue it blindly with like with uh, a blind eye toward history because a lot of um issues in southern american governments uh, and Central American governments have been caused by by quote unquote foreign aid, by, where our definition of yeah. foreign aid was to give people give a group of people guns, yeah, and just like let them go, yeah, and and then like kind of backing ourselves into a corner where we had to like legitimize governments because we weren't able to otherwise help a situation. Um, so it's 
we seem to be more willing or um, as a government is less interested in acknowledging what we've done in the interest of, of doing good things and, and more interested in just kind of fighting about who's to blame. And, and that is unfortunate. Yeah, um, it's, it's tough. So and I, I won't I won't pretend to know no. everything about the nuances of, of the debate. Even I think I just think this is it's been a bad couple of years, but a bad couple of weeks in, you know, specifically for anybody who hopes that we can approach the the situation like in good faith and humanely. Yep. Um, um, there so are, I guess like, I yeah. guess what I like you, you go, cause it sounds like you had some, well, I just pulled up the, the information for um, races, which is the refugee and immigrant center for education and legal services which you may have seen going around online you can donate to them but they are largely operating in texas so if you are not in texas um, you may want to look for uh, another local organization to support um, that is not you know support races certainly but also support um, organizations in your community that you might want to find if you are local to philly i can recommend um, juntos j-u-n-t-o-s um, as an organization that offers aid to folks in Philadelphia. Well, and you and you and I talked about doing this, so we just want to like make it official oh, on, yeah, the, yeah. on the air. Is yeah. um, we are going to be donating like a good chunk of the month's Patreon haul to yes. races this month. So thank you just to, to our like supporters help them and the work they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can you can find out more about that. Um, R a i c e s. Um, but you're, you're, if you are on Facebook, you are likely seeing uh, posts about this as well. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for reading this book and you're sharing welcome. it with me. I read it. You you made me laugh sometimes, and then you punched me in the gut with the end of this book. Just like real life. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, if you, the listener, would like to tell us um, what you thought about this episode, or if you have any other questions about stuff we talked about, you can shoot us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on our social feeds. We are gotten, getting a lot of folks who reached out during the live show um, or in response to it. So this includes, this is a partial list um, of folks who were hitting us up on facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. It includes Mel, Carol, Sean, Bob, James, Emily, Nora, Rebecca, Amber, Megan, Adam, and Eric. Uh, thanks y'all for coming out. Andrew, where do folks go if they want to know more about the show? Uh, they can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to all of our old episodes as well as links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feeds. Those are ways you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out. Um, usually that happens on Mondays, but uh, we are about to release our bonus episode for June. I read Aristotle Detective by <laughs> Margaret Duty. And it was mm-hmm. a good time. We had a great um, time. We had a great time. It was a fun. It was a fun book. Um, we also have links up there to our Patreon project that we just mentioned. That's a way you can support the show financially. Um, Headgum, our podcast network, and um, a new listener page, which we need to update <laughs> pretty yep. badly. But it has a list of episodes that we like particularly well. If you are trying to introduce somebody new to the show. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to release the Aristotle Detective episode, and then next Monday we're going to post the audio from the live show we just did about Redwall by Brian Jakes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, wanna, we'll do you be, want me to do the rundown of Yeah, of just do the July, July schedule. Yeah, do it. So July first uh, is Redwall, as Andrew said. Then we're talking about A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. 
Then we're going to be talking about the divine secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. We're going to spoil those secrets. I always get confused with the... Um, traveling the pants. Traveling pants, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we're going to talk about Mystic River and close out the month with the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Uh, and I think we will also, by the end of the month, post another... Uh, edition of the joint stop Homer time episode. So look forward to that. Yeah, the reaction well. to that has been super fun. So, yep. Keep uh, that that's it, I guess. That's it, everyone. So thank you for listening and indulging us as we have a bit more serious conversation where we don't have the answers <laughs> instead of a funny conversation where we don't have the answers. Hey, I do have an answer to the question of best fries and it's McDonald's. It's McDonald's. Okay, everybody. <laughs> if you have fry thoughts or anything else, Uh, Hit us up. Until next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.